0: I actually think that in the next decade, this region will probably be more, be looked to as a pioneer, a source of the innovations for the future, more perhaps than the old countries of Europe and and the US. I I would hope that the ASEAN region cannot be so dumb (laughs) as the rest of the world has.
1: You're listening to the inaugural podcast from Tech for Impact, and that was Jeff Mulgan, a global thought leader in the field of social innovation. More from him in just a moment. But first, allow me to introduce myself and this podcast. My name is Taymor Nabili. And every couple of weeks from now on, I'll be posting a conversation with a leading thinker, a visionary, a practitioner, entrepreneur, anyone, in fact, who's committed to the cause of sustainable technology and a clean future for the Asia-Pacific region. As this series progresses, I'll be focusing on specifics, taking a close look at an idea, a startup, a technology, a project maybe, real conversations about real solutions to Asia's development challenges. But for this first episode, I thought we should start with a broader premise and take a big-picture look at the themes and priorities that will inform this series. And recently, I was extremely fortunate to be able to spend some time with Jeff Mulgan. Jeff is currently Professor of Collective Intelligence, Public Policy and Social Innovation at University College London. Prior to that, he was chief executive of Nesta, the UK's innovation foundation. He's an advisor to governments, think tanks and businesses. He's published multiple books, the latest being social innovation, and his list of accomplishments goes on and on. Jeff, it's a pleasure to have you with us today, and thanks a lot for talking to us. Thank you. Let me throw you in at the deep end and say, if one of the regional bodies, let's say ASEAN for the sake of argument, or even the Asian Development Bank, was to say to you, Jeff, how do we ensure the Asian development story is not only successful in terms of alleviating poverty and um, making life better for the people of Asia, but also in helping the environment and driving the
0: sustainability story. Where do we even begin to have that conversation? Well, part of the answer, I think, has to be how do you direct brain power, innovative capacity, creative potential to the right things? And a mistake which I think we've seen again and again over the last 200 years in development trajectories has been when an overemphasis on purely economic goals and often on technology development for the sake of technology leads to huge imbalances, uh, instabilities, backlashes. And then society has to be brought in in tandem. So and a very sort of concrete uh, sign of this is what happens around things like drones or AI. So the model of development settled in the 20th century in countries like the US, or for that matter, the Soviet Union and others, was that the first priority for R&D, innovation is the military. Then Mm -hmm. later on comes the commercial. And only much, much later does anyone ask, well, actually, could these drones be used for medical supplies? Could AI help with poverty alleviation? And I I would hope that the ASEAN region cannot be so dumb (laughs) as the rest of the world has, And it's the reason why I'm so obsessed with social innovation, with innovation which has a focus on outcomes, not just on inputs, that we see technology not just as a thing which comes from outside Mm. into society, but almost every field that matters. The really useful uh, results come from combining technology innovation with human innovation, organizational and social innovation. But
1: that very history that you just described, that those trends and that path that the West trod, with its emphasis on those undesirable elements that you talked about, is unfortunately looking a lot like the way Asia is developing. And rightly so, and understandably so, surely, because we now have a system that at least we know works. How does... How can we break out of the mindset and those patterns and that structural development model that has been set down to go to the direction that you're talking about?
0: Well, two good starting points. Um, one is human happiness. I think probably most people in this region would say that's a pretty good reason to have but economic growth. And but you're, you-
1: you're, subst- you're substituting new paradigms, new measuring me- metrics, uh, new ideas and priorities where How are you going to dislodge the old priority, which is we need to make profit and we need to get people uh, with enough income to get them out of poverty?
0: Well, in many countries in the region, there has been a very live debate about how to focus on happiness and not just GDP growth, Mm -hmm. including in China, in Korea, as well as uh, here, here in Singapore. And if you look at the World Happiness Report for this year, what is the single best predictor of how countries score on happiness? It's not actually GDP, that's important. It's not even healthy life expectancy. The single most important factor is whether people have social support, people they can rely on. So fairly obviously, you'd have thought that policy and innovation R&D should be ensuring that people do have that kind of social support alongside growing income, improving healthcare, et cetera. And yet nowhere on the planet... Is that a priority for innovation? So it shouldn't be that hard. And obviously the other great goal of our times is climate change, mm-hmm. decarbonisation and so on. And again, it seems to me wholly uh, unacceptable for any government or indeed development bank to have a, an investment programme which isn't prioritising decarbonisation and not just the development of new technologies, which are for renewable energy or, uh, or buildings or vehicles, but also attending to the adoption and implementation of those and they're linked to lifestyle choices made by consumers. I, I want to press you a little bit on a little bit more on, on this
1: cultural shift, or priority shift in development terms. A lot of development is driven by corporate interests. They have the technologies, they have the capacities, they have, in many cases, the finance, mm. and they have a lot of power over the political decision-makers. Mm. Those guys are not prioritizing happiness over profit in the
0: development of the Asian story. How can we change that? But those parameters and, and that situation? Well, some of the change comes from politics and uh, many, many political leaders around the world from, as I say, from President Xi to Bhutan to France have uh, an Angela Merkel in Germany acknowledge that actually their public care more about happiness than growth. Growth is a means to happiness, not an end in itself. And, of course, corporates will prioritise profit, uh, but they want happy consumers. And if consumers care about well-being, and increasingly they do, they will look to corporates to respond. There are also other stronger levers which will have an impact in the next five or ten years. So the European Union, under its new president, who starts this month, is almost certainly going to bring in much stricter rules on ESG, environmental social governance reporting Mm -hmm. for companies. They will be standards, and they will have an impact, not immediately, but I think longer run on many other regions of the world. So I think the smart corporates and many smart corporate leaders see this as a direction of travel. So people like Paul Pullman, who ran Unilever for many years, is absolutely convinced That to be sustainable as a business, looking to 2030, 2040 and beyond, yes, you've got to attend to your bottom line. But if you're not also thinking about the story you will tell about your social commitments, your environmental contribution, and of course, good governance too, you're seriously at risk (laughs) of being blindsided by change. But are you not worried that more corporate leaders, especially here in
1: Asia, but but even in Europe, have not jumped on Paul Pullman's bandwagon or,
0: or followed his direction. But there's certainly a long way to go, but it's interesting, particularly in China, seeing the big corporates and the founders, once they start foundations alongside their businesses, so people like Jack Ma, founders of Tencent and so on, actually environmental goals become absolutely central to them. So uh, these things change in spurts. There are long periods where nothing appears to shift and then suddenly uh, there is a, a, a change of mindset and culture. And I'd be surprised if at some point that doesn't happen.
1: You, you warned uh, at the
0: beginning of
1: relying too much on technology or perhaps the misusing technology in the wrong context. But it is tempting and it is very Appropriate in some cases to reach for new tech to try and make things happen
0: What role should technology be playing in the development story? Well, I'm a tech fanatic. I have a PhD in telecommunications I'm basically an enthusiast for what digital can do to everything from farming to energy to transport Um, and In many ways, the biggest advances come from applying often quite simple, quite cheap technology at scale. And a lot of my work as a funder and an investor in Nesta is we we finance uh, companies and social enterprises using technology to improve ambulance services or farming in Nepal or uh, urban transport in Africa, that sort of thing. So that's meat and drink to me. I think, though, however, you do have to combine the technical, the technological, and the social. And here, actually, I think East Asia is in some ways in the forefront. So, if you ask which city on the planet, probably has the most advanced ideas for combining high technology with social innovation. It'd be Seoul in Korea where the mayor, Won Soon Park, has been an advocate of social innovation for many years and it's also probably got the most connected population on the planet. Uh, Taiwan is another fascinating example where the national government, thanks to uh, ministers like Audrey Tang, has integrated social innovation into how they make policy using digital platforms to involve the public in shaping policy far ahead of anything in Europe let alone uh, North America. Uh, And of course, right across China, you've got extraordinary experiments underway on things like driverless cars, city brains, and so on, sometimes a bit detached from the social input, but sometimes with a sense of how you need to engage civil society and citizens to get those technologies uh, to work. So I actually think that in the next decade, this region will probably be more, be looked to as a pioneer, a source of the innovations for the future, more perhaps than the old countries of Europe and, and the U.S.
1: The examples that you mentioned are, by and large, urban situations Mm. uh, and in the slightly more developed countries. What about the uh, agricultural um, and the rural communities of Asia? How does tech fit into their lifestyle?
0: Well, uh, there's a very interesting story you can look at in sub-Saharan Africa, which in some ways I know the rural side of that more than Asia. It's a lot poorer than than Asia. But there, the spread of um, simple phones and smartphones has massively transformed the everyday life of farmers. Now, in some cases, that is simply making sure that data on weather patterns, impending droughts or floods and so on is communicated to farmers. Sometimes it's things like turning them into a collective intelligence. So the WeFarm project Mm. is one I really like in, in, in Africa, which has about 3 million farmers now using an SMS system to post problems they're facing. Then using a bit of smart AI, that problem is sent to other farmers who might have solutions. You then get a response from the collective brain of those two or three million farmers and hopefully can solve your your problem. Uh, We've worked a lot on aquaculture issues, both in Asia and Africa, where, again, quite simple technologies can help link um, the aqua farmers to intermediate markets, to end markets, to great, so they understand the price they can get for their fish. They can reduce delays in the transport uh, system so they don't have so much wastage. Uh, I I mean, a a modern smart farming system is so data intensive and most of the technologies are inherently quite cheap that I think we will see a complete transformation of everyday life in farming over the next 10 or 20 years if governments, funders and others put in place the right access.
1: How does that access happen, though? I mean, you talked about the collective brain and that's Mm. a really intriguing theoretical notion because we do have the technology, we do have the expertise, we do have the talent, but it's all very dissipated. Uh, none of it really organizes in that way. How can we create a situation in Asia where the, those capabilities and that knowledge and that talent is able to collectively act? in order to make difference?
0: So I I think this is the key question of the next 10 years and a lot of my work at the moment is on collective intelligence and how do you organize collective intelligence in practice. Uh, And we're working with many parts of the UNDP across the world in making that practical. And it requires a curator, an orchestrator of that knowledge. So I mentioned WeFarm, that only works because someone manages the platform, puts it in place, makes it easy Mm. to use. Uh, The vampire system in Southeast Asia across Indonesia does a very similar job for climate shifts. But again, it requires someone to pull together all the data, some of it from satellites and sensors, some of it generated by citizens. That has to be orchestrated and then made useful and available to others. Uh, Healthcare is the other field where there are Huge numbers of um, innovations around the world pooling patient knowledge and patient experience as well as doctors and nurses' Mm -hmm. knowledge and experience so that that collective knowledge can easily be accessed by someone in a village facing a particular uh, problem, having to make a diagnosis for something they haven't seen before. But what we're lacking are the people who are really good at that job of curating and organizing knowledge. And one of my predictions is that if we were inventing the United Nations now, We probably wouldn't be creating a whole series of money-based organizations, an IMF, a World Bank, ADB, IADB, and so on. Or rather, we would still be creating them, but alongside them, we'd be creating as important organizations whose job was the organization of data, information, Mm. and knowledge at scale and in a systematic way. At the moment, it's no one's job to do that well. So it's not done well. It's done as an afterthought, but it seems to me so obvious that at this point in the 21st century, that's the crucial bit to make systems work.
1: Well, well. look, that's exactly what Tech for Impact is trying to do. But are you seeing anybody who's managing to do that effectively yet? And if not, what is the big holdup? How can we actually get all those players
0: together, all those stakeholders, and have those conversations in a meaningful way? Well, some of this work is done really rather well within some corporates so within an alibaba a samsung a google you know they are they invest very heavily in training and mm. skills and the systematic orchestration of their own data their own information their own knowledge because that's key to being successful as a business what we're missing is an equivalent seriousness of purpose for public interest or for very distributed systems like farming or retail, uh, etc. We're beginning to see some good alternatives. So the science world now has lots of citizen science projects, often with millions of members of the public playing a part in spotting new stars or tracking penguins in the Antarctic uh, uh, and so on. We're seeing a lot happening in health again, because there's a lot of investment in health and a lot of motivation amongst patients and doctors. But I think we are missing the core institutions who see it as their job to do this and then the flow of both expertise and money from the big investment organizations and probably a lot of the expertise needs to come from the private sector, which just has more experience of doing this well. So give me some examples um, or
1: ideas about what Asia could do. What are the technologies out there that are applicable and yet are not yet gaining traction in this
0: part of the world? Well, a very simple example, uh, and what I'm working on a bit, is, is labour markets and jobs. Mm. So in the next 10 or 15 years, we will see, partly because of technology, huge disruption to all sorts of industries, like um, textiles, uh, um, low-level manufacturing, which employ millions of people across Asia. Now, what we could do, and what some countries are trying to do, is to pull together all the available data on on jobs, what skills are being looked for, what pay levels are, and curating that as a collective intelligence, turning that into tools so individuals can uh, know if their job is likely to be destroyed in the next few years, can know what one extra skill would make them most likely to have a job in 10 years' time, can point them towards the training Mm -hmm. provider who can help them with that skill. Now, that is doable with today's technologies. It requires quite a bit of, orchestration and curation but it's absolutely vital for countries like or Bangladesh or Thailand or Malaysia um, if people are not going to face you know horrendous disruption to their lives in the next few years so that, that's one territory where there are maturing technologies. And again I mean you're talking here
1: about fairly large-scale and government-involved kind of projects.
0: That, that almost certainly has to have government mm. involved both at a national level and at a and at the city level as well.
1: Are, are there private sector technologies that are perhaps a little bit easier to implement that don't take so much political power and convening capacity to put together?
0: Well, in those examples, there they need to be private partners mm. like Google, LinkedIn, and others who have very sophisticated technologies. And we're, we're working on similar projects in Europe with Google and others as partners because often they have you know, more advanced skills But the full benefit to the public will only come if these are turned into public goods of some kind. Uh, I think the same applies in in agriculture, where there's lots of proprietary knowledge, there's lots of private offerings. But in the medium term, I would hope that almost any government should be providing all its farmers with access as a public good to the best available data on what is happening to trends in, in weather and climate and soils and so on. And then let the market create apps off the back of that data, which can be tailored to different uses. But the underlying uh, provision should be done as a commons, as a public good. Your
1: most recent work is focusing on social innovation. What is the role of the of the civic population in driving changes like this?
0: Well, I think again and again, we see the public civil society often is more innovative, more creative than big government or big business or big universities. And uh, in a way, the history over 200 years of social innovation is of society spotting problems, often well ahead of the the power structures and innovating new solutions. So one, one example which has been very important in the last few years is isolation loneliness so we know lots more now about the effects of loneliness not just on people's mental health but also their physical health it's equivalent to smoking 40 cigarettes a day being a really lonely person now this was not on anyone's agenda 10 or 15 years ago but lots of civil society projects have been experimenting with befriending and visits and encouraging isolated older people into uh, dance classes all sorts of things have been done um, initially in the the big cities of the West, but increasingly in cities like Shanghai or Beijing, which in some ways have a more acute problem of isolation because of the long-term effects of the one-child policy. Now, that's a field where civil society spots the problem, names it, comes up with solutions, and then later along comes government to try and support it because they realise the cost of having epidemics of loneliness is huge pressure on your hospital systems, your residential care systems, and then business comes in as well because often business can provide provide you know tweaks on twitter or facebook and so on which can help create circles of support around an isolated person. And we've seen versions of this happening on everything from elder care to child care to public parks and so on where civil society is creative but I, and ideally there's a healthy relationship between government and civil society where government respects that sort of trailblazer role of citizens, supports them, acknowledges them, and then helps the scaling process once those innovations are proven.
1: Well, the key word there was ideally, wasn't it? Uh, mm. And we live in a part of a world where the cultural diversity, the economic diversity, uh, the geographical diversity is so bewildering that any one-size-fits-all kind of theory is is bound to stumble in various different environments. Mm. I'm just wondering whether... The social aspect of this and the amount of talent and knowledge available in this part of the world is sufficient to create the
0: world that you're talking about? Well, I think parts of this part of the world are, as I said earlier, are trailblazers, so in terms of national policies, um, both Malaysia and Korea have been amongst the countries mm. with national programs on social innovation. Uh, you see in a country, again, like Bangladesh through BRAC and Grameen, the world's largest NGOs which have really institutionalized social innovation on microcredits, schooling and other things in ways which have then been copied by, uh, by the rest of the world. So I think the the issue is more how that knowledge is orchestrated. There's no shortage of creativity and dynamism. Perhaps the region doesn't recognize how good it is at this, uh, and so those remain as isolated pockets rather than being scaled up. And of course, there isn't a nation social innovation bank (laughs) to act as the the wholesaler to create new capital markets. And and this, I think, is one space where the, the, the region perhaps has fallen, is behind. So in the UK, in social innovation, and particularly link it to investment. Mm. So ten years ago in the UK, with the help of government, we created a wholesale bank called Big Society Capital, a billion dollars or so, to provide the investment, the cornerstone investment for lots of intermediaries who could then invest in social ventures of all kinds. It wouldn't have happened just waiting for the market. It required government to make that move. Canada, under Justin Trudeau, is about to commit a a billion dollars in Canada to social innovation investments of all kinds. We still haven't got anything quite of that scale and ambition in this region and yet my guess is there are lots of well-placed players to be the intermediaries who could use that wholesale finance and really have an impact. What's going to spark that? Well, I think it requires, I mean, what it required in in Europe and North America was a government to get this, to really understand uh, why it made sense. They were persuaded often by people from orthodox finance backgrounds So in the UK, a key player was the most successful venture capitalist of his generation, who said, of course, we should be applying those venture capital models to social innovation. It would be crazy not to. And he persuaded uh, politicians. I'm not sure if you've got those champions yet. You probably need them. Um, But I think there will be a, a lot to be learned from other parts of the world, which have shown you can actually invest in social ventures of all kinds or social purpose for-profit enterprises and get as good a return as from more traditional commercial investment. Well, you say we don't
1: have those champions, but you're in as good a place as anybody to judge whether the mental trajectory and the philosophical approach to these things is gaining ground in this environment. Are you seeing signs of hope? Are you seeing individuals emerging
0: who are speaking this language? Yeah, and you have strong networks like the AVPN, the Venture Philanthropy Network Mm. in Asia. You've got individual banks beginning to talk this language. Uh, Hong Kong has had a roughly billion Hong Kong dollars. I think it's more than that actually now. You know, Social Innovation Fund, which is bringing in matching funding from some of the, the, the big entrepreneurs, not only of Hong Kong, but Southern China. So I think... There is an ecosystem beginning to emerge. Uh, These things take a bit of time (laughs) Uh, and uh, in in a way what we perhaps haven't seen is enough presidents and prime ministers really articulating this as an important part of their agenda. And I think there's a narrative, and this is a, a, a crucial other missing bit, but I think it relates to the fourth industrial revolution and how one really imagines that transforming this region. And I go back to an analogy with the first Industrial Revolution, which began in my country uh, rather a long time ago. Uh, And to slightly caricature the history, in the first half of the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution completely transformed England and Scotland. Millions of people went from the countryside into cities, worked in factories. But when they got to those cities, they were pretty miserable places, incredibly dirty, incredibly unhealthy, life expectancy Mm. fell, crime rose. And then in the second half of the 19th century, people realized this was a bit of a disaster and huge effort was put into social innovation, creating universal education, uh, sewage systems, public health, public water, uh, democracy, microcredit, trade unions. And by the end of the 19th century, you know, life was still pretty miserable, but it was nothing like as bad. And I think we'll see a similar trajectory with the fourth industrial revolution. At first there'll be just a surge of emphasis just on the technology. That will create all sorts of problems and unbalances from mass unemployment to fake news and so on. And then we'll see much more effort to help the social and the technological and economic be brought into into alignment. And I think any smart political leader and any smart business leader who's a tiny bit aware of history should try and be ahead of the game on that Jeff thanks very much indeed thank you